Admitted. We'll hear argument next in number 94-1471, Verity Corporation versus Charles Howe. Mr. Abrams, you may proceed whenever you're ready. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is an ERISA case, and I think it's useful at the outset to make clear what the case is not about. This case does not involve any breach by Verity of any promise it made in any of its ERISA documents or with respect to the nature and scope of any ERISA plan. There was no dispute in any of the uh, judicial opinions below about the proposition that the official ERISA plan documents did not provide for vested or lifetime welfare benefits. And there was a ruling from which certiorari has not been sought from counsel for the uh, plaintiffs in this case that there was no entitlement to benefits in this case under Section 502A1B, the benefits section of ERISA. The questions before this Court, then, are not whether benefits were due or whether ERISA was violated because, in some way, there were improper misrepresentations made about plan documents. Well, Mr. Abrams, in your view, if you prevail here, would the respondents have some sort of remedy for these rather obviously uh, fraudulent statements? If we were to uh, prevail in this court, respondents would have the following potential remedies. They have a case pending in the federal court uh, in Iowa in which they purport to assert, and we will oppose it, of course, certain common law claims which they maintain are not preempted under ERISA, claims of non-fair dealing, claims of constructive dismissal. And your position is that those claims are preempted? Actually, we have not argued that those claims are preempted. Uh, It is not our position that those claims are preempted. They also have a claim for fraud and fraudulent misrepresentation and the like. We believe those claims are preempted. Uh, So they have those potential claims. There are two claims as to which the district court ruled against us on, uh, as to which the Court of Appeals did not reach and which are not for this court because they weren't reached, a Section 510 claim under ERISA and an estoppel claim under ERISA. Did, that, did those go to the group to whom no misrepresentations were made, but who were under a plan unknown to them? They are placed under some other plan in another entity that proves insolvent. Mr. Abrams, there was one uh, footnote in your reply brief that I must say took me aback, and that was the one that said that surely these people who were transferred from one entity to another without a word of notice, surely they have no complaint because no misrepresentation was made to them. It was just done without even giving them any notice, any opportunity to say no. There is no provision in ERISA, and there is no provision in any contract in this case providing for notice. We had an absolute right to terminate these individuals. But this wasn't a terminate. It was the, it, 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 what happened here, in fact, was a termination and... and, and, and let, let me ask you this yes. so we can be very clear that we're talking about the same, not entirely hypothetical case. Employees work for a company under a plan and they retire. And while they are in retirement, the trustee... And we're we're doing, dealing with a single employer plan. Takes that plan, 
duplicates its identical plan, puts it in another entity, which is tottering on the brink of bankruptcy, and then when these people claim their benefits, tells them, oh, sorry, you're no longer under the entity that was able to pay for your benefits. That is absolutely what you cannot do under a pension plan. With respect to health benefits, since you have an absolute right to terminate, a right which was reserved explicitly here and which the law assumes But when you terminate, don't you have to give people notice so that they can find other insurance? This is not a case involving an alleged failure of disclosure. This is not a disclosure claim by them. I'm not asking you about disclosure. I'm asking if we're if in the termination in mode, if you terminate a plan, don't you have to give the beneficiaries notice that they're being terminated so that they can get alternate protection for themselves? If, if they are entitled to benefits, is our position the place to go is the benefits section of ERISA. That, that is what it is there for. Uh, are you, I just, if, you, if you tell me that that's what the, your position is and that's what the law is, that there is nothing in the whole of ERISA that stops an employer from putting people under an umbrella that is going to be uh, swiftly bankrupt without telling them that there's nothing in ERISA that stops that, and moreover, because ERISA is preemptive, these people have nothing to complain about. Is well, there nothing I'm... in ERISA, what, that what, has, what happened here with respect to the ones who were already retired, where they got no notice of this transfer? Retirement, as I understand it, is not a vesting point under ERISA. Retirement has no more uh, clarity for ERISA purposes than any time when they were employed or after they ceased to be employed. If it is true that my client had an absolute right to cancel these people, to terminate these people, to alter the plan of these people without telling them, without their consent, and that is, as I understand it, ERISA law, then the so fact... So you're saying that the em employee security Income Security Act allows an employer to do this. The misrepresentations then are beside the point. You didn't the, have to say anything. The misrepresentations indeed are beside the point with respect to these people. The, the misrepresentations are entirely irrelevant with respect to these people. These so people the Congress had no... set up the Employee Retirement Income Security Act gave employees no security against what happened here, uh, Again, is, against waking up one morning and find that they have no coverage because they are now under some umbrella that they never heard of. No more protection than waking up some morning and finding they have no coverage at all. These employees were paid for 22 months, suppose because they, the new company paid them. Suppose they'd not been. Suppose what had happened right, here. I, I think I have your, right, your answer. Sorry. They don't have to get any notice right. so that they can get that ERISA simply allows this to happen. And that's... Uh, that is my position. Okay. Is, is, is that Mr. Arisa? Abrams, yes. um, does, um, does it require, however, that the health plan be terminated or amended as opposed to simply moving people around to another company? Does it require some action by the plan manager? It, it does require some... Something has to happen, Justice O'Connor. Uh, I mean, a, a, a real act. Well, what this looks like is that what happened was something that had the result of 
causing the plan not to be funded, but it was not technically an amendment or a termination of the health plan. Am I correct? It was, it was not technically an amendment to the health plan itself. What or a it was, termination what it, of it. What it was, it, I believe it was there a termination. There, there was no action taken by Verity saying, as of date X, we terminate this plan. There, yeah, it well, was done very indirectly. It was, it, it was done in a purchase agreement as between Verity and MCC, which explicitly provided for the termination by Verity, that then Massey Ferguson, of its obligations and the taking over of those obligations by the new company. But you don't necessarily. You don't necessarily have a right in the questionnaire when they say what happens to my benefits and pensions to say they'll say the same. Your comp the company has a bright future, and your benefits are quite secure. I mean, that might be to mislead them, I take it, uh, in respect to their decision about whether to stay with the company and have a plan or go to a new one. And I thought this case is about whether those statements are fraudulent in res where you didn't think they were true uh, in respect to a pension plan information, and that is a cause of action there. In fact, it's a breach of fiduciary obligation, arguably, right? The second issue in this case is just what you've described. Right. Is, is, what, well, is what you've described a breach of fiduciary obligation, or is it because it is not a part of plan administration? And if it is a breach of fiduciary obligation, then why can't the person whose duty was breached bring an action? Uh, because right. isn't there an obligation that a fiduciary under ERISA has the same obligations as a fiduciary at common law, and uh, those obligations run to the beneficiaries and so forth? I, I would reverse the questions, but, but, but those are indeed the questions. Uh, and, and the first of them, as we see it, is, is there a cause of action here at all? Uh, is there an individual cause of action uh, which, which can be brought by somebody for his or her or a group's own relief as opposed to a plan's relief? Now, this Court has not addressed that question uh, uh, directly. Uh, it has addressed the section of ERISA, which is next to A3. It's addressed... A2. Mr. Abrams, in that respect, a plan is only helped by having a lot of people drop out of it. So the plan uh, has assets. So there's a disjunction there. The people who have brought this action are the people who are injured. The plan isn't injured by having fewer people to cover. So uh, these people are claiming that we have an injury because of what this trustee did. Right. And are you saying, again, that ERISA does not protect these employees? It only protects plans. I am saying that ERISA does not provide a private cause of action for an individual on his own behalf to assert but breach I of fiduciary duty. If the plan is a stand-in for the individual, in many situations it is. If you get the plan gets the relief, then the beneficiary will get the relief. But here, it doesn't work that way. It's the, the plan hasn't been deprived of any assets. That will always be the case. That will always be the case. When and there's always going to be the, the potential for a hiatus in recovery because the plan is going to do very well by getting rid of these people. The plan has, as a plan, has no obligation, I suppose, to, to claim any harm. And the individuals on your theory can't sue. Well, what the individuals can sue Isn't for... Isn't that correct? Subject only, Justice Souter, to the proposition that an individual can sue for loss of benefits. That is precisely, I mean, the, the whole structure of ERISA is arranged so that the 
first provision of civil remedies. He would, he would sue, on your theory, he would sue the fiduciary and require the fiduciary to pay him benefits if a month? If he has been, month? Yes. That's, that's, yes. That's what if he has improperly been deprived of benefits, the claim he should make, the claim Marissa sends him to, is a claim for lost benefits. Uh, and if he is not entitled to lost benefits under ERISA, we, you, you've already held in Russell that he cannot claim under subpart 2, which, which is a plan-oriented claim, so this court is bound mm-hmm. with respect to fiduciary obligations. question here, then, is can the individual sue under subpart 3 for the same thing he cannot sue for under subpart 2, breach well, of fiduciary well, obligations? Under subpart 3, uh, it must mean something. It does say that a participant or beneficiary can bring a civil suit to enjoin an act or practice violating the law or the terms of the plan or to obtain other appropriate equitable relief, whatever that is. Does that mean, for instance, that the people who were transferred without their knowledge from the original plan to the new corporation could perhaps at least bring a suit to enjoin that action and require that they be returned to the original no, plan? Not, not, we think, for breach of fiduciary duty. They can bring the action, and we have not argued to the contrary, under Section 510. Section 510 of ERISA does allow an employee who is wrongly discharged to see back pay, reinstatement, and the like. That action can be brought through A3. The, 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 the reason, as we see it, that, it, that A3 cannot be used to seek fiduciary responsibility is all the potential for duplication, well, overlap, and inconsistency. not to seek um, damages, certainly. That seems to be limited, as the Court has described in Russell. But is there anything left under 3 by way of a right to get an injunction or some kind of equitable order? We read Section 409 to be the exclusive place to get an injunction. Of course, you can get an injunction under 409, but it's a plan that can get an injunction under 409. As we understand 409, it is the remedy Congress chose to deal with breaches of fiduciary obligation and all breaches. That apply. I can understand that very well with respect to plan. The assets have been managed, the assets uh, have dwindled, and so you build up the plan. I don't understand that it's, it's certainly no remedy for people who have the complaint that these people have. He said that they could sue for benefits wrongfully withheld, but there are no benefits wrongfully withheld on your theory that they're under this new umbrella, and it's too bad the umbrella, that company's gone bankrupt. My theory is not just that they had a new umbrella, but that they never had entitlement to benefit, never for a moment had entitlement to benefit. They had an entitlement to notice of termination, if that's what happened. If they had an entitlement to notice of termination, they certainly received that when they were told that they were part of the new company. If the problem here is... They weren't told. They They were told when they were told they weren't getting any more benefits. Oh. I'm saying they they received benefits for the entire period. I mean, there there was no hiatus here. There was no period when Massey-Ferguson plan was going on and the new company was out there, and they didn't get benefits. But after they stopped getting benefits, they, in, in answer to my earlier question, you said, well, they can sue for benefits, and now you're saying, but they're not entitled to any benefits. Yes, it is my so position. So the, the practical matter is there's nothing to sue for. 
There is no alternative uh, what I'm, to what they're claiming. What, what I'm saying is that they did sue for benefits. They lost. They should have lost. There is no petition for certiorari pending. So that gets back, I guess, to my question, and that is for the particular claim that is being made here, there is no remedy. There is, in, there is a fact, in fact, a gap in the possibility of recovery because the plan is doing fine. It could care less that it has to pay fewer benefits, and the individuals, on your theory, uh, have nothing that they can recover for. That certainly is our position, yeah. Justice. Well, and that's what we have. Yeah. That's that's well, that's the position we took below. And now, now it's even more than that. Not just that there's no remedy. You say there's been no right violated. That 1109 uh, establishes a fiduciary duty uh, uh, to the plan, but not to the individual members of the plan. You say there's no fiduciary yeah. duty to these individuals that's been violated. That is it's our not position. just that, that it's been violated, but there's no remedy for it. You say there's been no violation. We, we believe the duties are set forth in uh, 1109. Yes. Now, 404, of course, which they're relying on, uh, it either leads into 409 or, it, or, or should be viewed, as they maintain, separately. It's our view that, that, that 404 is a part of a scheme. 404 imposes, sets forth the prudent, quote, the prudent man standard of care. Uh, under your and view of 404, um, Mr. Abrams, uh, does the fiduciary have an obligation uh, to refrain from giving fraudulent information to a person who requests information about uh, the future of the plan and the, and, and the advisability of the participant remaining in the plan. If there were false information given of, of that sort, then if we were to lose on point one, if that is to say, if, if there is a, an individualized cause of action here, we agree we should lose on point two on that. I mean, one still has to address the first question of whether they, they have a claim at all for individualized relief. But if they do, then I agree that, that the answer to your question is that would indeed constitute a, a breach of fiduciary obligation. Now, the, Can I ask one, one yes. technical question? You do not dispute, as I understand it, that the relief granted in this case was, quote, equitable, unquote, within the meaning of subparagraph. That's correct. Uh, that's not something that we've raised. But you argue it's not appropriate. We, we do not argue that. Right. Now, the, 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 the first question, then, is, is there a cause of action? Does 409 mean what we think it means? Are we correct in our overview that 409 should be read as the culmination of these various sections uh, of ERISA, including Section 404? Uh, and if that is correct, as we maintain it is, if that's correct, then we think that, that, that there should be a ruling of this Court that there's no individualized cause of action. Mr. Abrams, if both readings, yours and the one that's being put forward by the other side, if both are plausible, do we take into account at all what was the underlying purpose of the entire ERISA that's expressed in its very title, employee security? If we're in equipoise between your interpretation and the other side, shouldn't we look at the underlying purpose of this whole scheme? I think it's entirely appropriate to look at the underlying purpose, but uh, I would disagree that that is the only underlying purpose. ERISA, as this Court has indicated, was a, the result of a bundle of compromises, and not all the compromises were made in favor of the members of the of the participants. Well, certainly the not. Plan. But the whole the overarching purpose. The overarching purpose of welfare benefits, as opposed to pension benefits, 
was at one and the same time to encourage employers to offer and to perpetuate what they need not offer and need not perpetuate. For, for the purpose of providing plans. employees with security. W yes, with, with the view that if you allow uh, employers to cut off plans, if you allow employers to do all sorts of things impossible and illegal with respect to pensions, that you'll wind up with more plans and more benefits. But I do not agree that ERISA in this area, in the welfare area, can properly be read as simply designed to assure more security uh, for, for individuals, except in the sense that I've said it. It was to do it... Now, I didn't ask you that. I didn't right. ask if, if every call in the statute is in favor of the employees. I asked you if we are in this situation of saying, we've read your brief and your interpretation of these provisions, and we've read the other side. But, and, could, um, could we use... You certainly can use the, the purpose of ERISA, and I would add to that, the structure of ERISA. You, you really have to look, in our view, at, at how ERISA was crafted. You know, what, what this court said was a carefully crafted nature of ERISA uh, and the interrelationship of the sections. Does it make sense to say that what Congress intended uh, in what the court has said was very thoughtful and careful creation of this, that what Congress meant to do is to have two lines, sometimes quite inconsistent with respect to the breach of fiduciary duties, have only one section of law which defines when you commit a breach of fiduciary duty, when you do not commit a breach of fiduciary duty, what is it that you're supposed to do about fiduciary duty, which applies only to plans, and Congress not to have adopted any other section for individuals. Well, we, we think that the way to make sense of ERISA, if you're in equipoise, or even if you're not, the way to make sense of it is to read it all, uh, and that we think when you read it all uh, that that's the way that, that you should read it. Now, if we're wrong on that, then you reach the second issue, uh, and then you reach the issue of whether this is a matter of plan administration. It's not an open question that uh, employers that run ERISA plans are permitted uh, at one and the same time uh, uh, to think of their own benefits, their own interests, and the interests of those who are in ERISA plans. That's, that's a proposition of long-standing. The question here, the narrow legal question is, when my client made various statements designed to persuade people to join MCC, the new corporation, was that, is that fairly reasonably described as a part of plan administration? Uh, we don't think it is. Uh, and, and that goes and, also for the group that was yes. not told anything. But yes. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think basically it's the same. You, you have to address the same question, is it plan administration for everyone? Because if it's not plan administration, you're not acting in a fiduciary capacity. I mean, the, the court has made clear that, that you are acting, that, that things which would be unthinkable for a trustee of a will, say, who is supposed to be thinking only of the interests of the person that the trustee is serving, are entirely appropriate with respect to ERISA. You're allowed to it, it seems to me that on, on this part of your argument, uh, what you're saying is, is that the uh, defendants below were wearing their uh, corporate executive hat yes, and sir. not their fiduciary hat. Yes, sir. But if they mislead and they're then and mislead uh, about uh, the participation in the plan, the solvency of the plan, the future of the plan, and so forth, it seems to me that the very fact that they're misleading helps us to determine which hats they're wearing, uh, because the employee has the just the justified expectation that he or she will receive accurate information about the plan whenever 
the fiduciary talks, no matter what has happened. I, I agree with that, Justice Kennedy, and they did. There is no claim here that they received inaccurate information about the plan. I mean, the, the, the brief amicus curiae of the United States, for example, makes, makes very clear and very honorably, although we disagree with them, that the one statement made to the individuals about the plan was true, that the plan would be the same after as it was before, that there would be no changes in the plan terms after as before. All the allegations of falseness and of false statements, every single one of them relates not to statements about the plan, but as to why you should join the new company and, and the, the good qualities of the new company and looking forward to a bright future, etc. And, and that is uh, indeed one of the reasons why we maintain that this is not uh, plan administration, whatever plan administration. Well, is. except it isn't there a sort of a common sense uh, of, of plan administration uh, that the plan is going to be better administered for those uh, whom it will benefit if it has fewer people to benefit. And therefore, uh, there is, there is a, a good administrative objective, I suppose, in theory, in simply reducing the plan's liabilities. And if these statements were made about the new corporation and its rosy future and so on, for the purpose or in part for the purpose uh, of, of causing this exodus out of the old plan and the reduction of the old plan's liabilities, why doesn't that fit within a concept of, of administrative purpose? You make it easier for the old plan to pay its benefits because you've got fewer benefits to pay. Consider at some level of abstraction, everything or almost everything can relate to the plan that relates to the company. Healthier company uh, has a healthier plan. A plan with fewer people in it uh, has more money to spend uh, and the like. We think that when the representations that are involved are but we think you should go to the new company because it has a bright future. We think that you ought to go to the new company uh, because uh, uh, it, it, it'll be a good company. But that, it tortures the language, with all respect, of plan administration to say that that is plan administration. I mean, we, well, we, I don't think we know whether it tortures it or not unless we first answer the question, and I guess it's the question which was behind one of Justice Ginsburg's questions to you. Um, should we, should we read the concept of plan administration, uh, if in doubt, uh, in a more expansive, expansive or a less expansive way? And her suggestion was that there is an overarching object in the statute which would be a good reason for reading it in an expansive way, which would bring these acts within the concept of administration. And I guess your answer is going to be the same as to her. There is no overarching scheme by which you can make that choice. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, that would be my answer, and I would give, give the rest of my answer as well about the nature of ERISA as a whole, the nature of welfare benefits, the schema about welfare as opposed to pension benefits uh, and the like. I'd like to save the rest of my time. Very well, Mr. Abrams. And Mr. Smith, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, let me respond to some of the things uh, petitioners argued. This is not a termination case. They do not have an inherent right to terminate. They must proceed under the terms of the plan, and that has not been done. Section 404, subparagraph D, makes it a fiduciary duty that it, they proceed under the terms of the plan. The plan that they were on with MF Inc., the viable plan, continues today, and they've taken no action under the terms of the plan. In fact, the MCC plan, they've taken no action. What happened, it was a self-funded plan. The self went bankrupt. I think Secondly, his point was, was, was simply that uh, when you're dealing with a statute that permits termination, 
it's very hard to think that somehow employees have been deprived of statutorily required security by not being given notice of, uh, of the transfer to a new company. Under the statute, they could have been terminated. They, you know, it, it's sort of hard to talk about their deprivation of some security that the statute assured to them. The statute allowed them to be terminated completely. The, the statute did justice, and they could have been, and they chose not to do that to further their own interests. As the district court found under facts that are not challenged on the appeal, there were practical reasons why petitioner did not want to proceed under the plan, and they used these people in an improper, unlawful way. And the fact that they could do it lawfully should not be justification for permitting them to do it unlawfully. For saying that you cannot reasonably argue that they have been deprived of some security interest which, uh, which the statute guarantees to them. Uh, that's correct if I understand it. And that moves us to what our A1B claim was. We have not been denied benefits under our A1B claim. Our A1B claim was a security claim. We took the position that our retirement benefits contractually vested on retirement under the Section 7.4 of the plan. We read it. We thought you could read it that way. And the court held we were wrong. But the court, neither at the district court nor at the circuit court level, has found that we were not entitled to benefits under A1B. What we're trying to do is to be restored to the viable plan that we removed ourselves from due to the fraudulent misrepresentations. We want to get restored to that plan, and then we can. But you don't, you don't argue that you were guaranteed any benefits under that plan, do you? I take it uh, your, your position is not that you were guaranteed benefits uh, of which you were deprived, but you simply had benefits of which you were fraudulently deprived. Exactly, Justice. We did argue it under other theories, but not under breach of fiduciary duty. We argued it and lost. But we do not argue it here. It's not part of our breach of fiduciary duty claim. Our breach of fiduciary duty claim is not attacking plan documents. We don't attempt to change or circumvent any of those uh, uh, term plans. All we're trying to do, again, because we were fraudulently removed from the viable plan, to get restored so we can have relief in accord with those plan documents. The other thing that I, there's no record, but since uh, it came in in petitioner's argument about our state court claim, that's based on the terminated class, which we lost on in the district court and seeking a common law actions for wrongful termination. And I was surprised to hear that they do not claim that that's preempted because they removed it to federal court on the basis of preemption. I don't think it has any bearing on our case here today. Mr. Smith, what is your response to the argument that as to the 10 plaintiffs who never worked for MCC, that there were no, no misrepresentations were made to those individuals in connection with the transfer of the uh, their coverage to MCC? So there's no basis for affirming the decision below, um, your opponent argues, with respect to that belief, because they weren't told anything. No misrepresentations were made to them. Justice, I agree with the first part. There were no representations of any nature made to them, but that's not uh, justifications that they have no relief. That's justification for once you get by the first question, 
petitioners have advanced no reason or make no argument to deny the 10 individuals because clearly it's a breach of fiduciary duty under Section 404D for them to proceed to unilaterally without informing them, without their consent, to transfer responsibility for their benefits to an entity that the district court found they knew was going to go bankrupt. So our position is that if we prevail on the first question for review, we're home free with regard to the 10 individual plaintiffs because they have not advanced any argument why there was not a breach of fiduciary duty. I would like to direct attention to the first question for review, and as you know, it's our position that if the petitioners are right in their interpretation of 502A3, there is a tremendous gap in this well-crafted scheme uh, that the courts recognize that Congress devised for enforcement and remedies. And that gap is, as has been pointed out here this morning, that you have no remedy for breaches of fiduciary duties that results in harm to participants or beneficiaries, but no losses to the plan. And that takes out practically all of the breaches of fiduciary duty relating to administration. Yes, but, but, I mean, in, indeed, except, of course, any breaches of fiduciary duty that, uh, that result in, uh, in uh, uh, loss of benefits to the individual, uh, which he can recover for under A, uh, A1B. Uh, certainly that, w- that, that covers a large number of, uh, of breaches of fiduciary duty, doesn't it? Well, it would, uh, assuming it constitutes a breach of contract, that you could, under contract principles, recover an A1B. But, Justice, there's many other things. In fact, one of the most fundamental things about administration is determining who is a participant that has a right to make claims under A1B. And you have these Mr. Mr. Avon's argument is not not to deny that that there are not individual rights that that uh, one would ordinarily have against a trustee, which are which are eliminated here, but rather to say that their elimination is part of the scheme of the statute, just as the ability of the of the employer to simply terminate unilaterally, which is extraordinary, is part of the statute. It it was. It was, uh, it was cost-benefit analysis. We, we want to make these uh, schemes easy and cheap for the employer to manage so that more employers will establish them. Why isn't that, uh, why isn't that a plausible it, argument? Justice, it's just not common sense that if Congress intended the exclusive remedy for private harm to participants and beneficiaries to be under A1B on contract principles, why would they make administration a fiduciary activity? Why would they make it fiduciary conduct? Why would they incorporate in Section 404 duties out of the common law that run directly to beneficiaries? And having done all that, why would they... Where, where, where does it say that run directly to the beneficiaries? I mean, the, 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 the argument Mr. Ravens makes is that 404 just, just establishes the, the standard of care, uh, but that it's, it's 409 which says to whom you are liable for breach of your fiduciary duty. For, where we, that's the title of 409. That's correct. If we're talking about titles, we'd prefer to go back to the subchapter, which says protection of employee benefit rights, if, if the court's going to focus on... Titles, but where we differ from Mr. Abramson, or Petitioner's Counsel, on that is 404 sets up the duties. His position is that 409 uh, limits 
what, where you can uh, have liability for breaches of those duties. I don't know that they dispute. In fact, I think they argue that duties were incorporated out of the common law. They try to argue that the remedies were not incorporated, which, again, just doesn't make sense. If Congress had intended 409 to be the exclusive means of remedies for breach of fiduciary duty, they could have said so, and they do not. May I ask this? Do you contend that the breach of fiduciary obligations that you've proved in this case or alleged were, all, were violations of duties defined in uh, 404? Correct. So you do say that 404 is the source of the, uh, of the fiduciary duty? Correct. All right. But then may I ask this question? If your reading of uh, subsection A of, of uh, 502A3, I should mean, is correct, uh, would the um, uh, plaintiffs in the Russell case have been able to prevail if they had pleaded under this section rather than just under subparagraph 2? Yes, and I'm pausing. I, I know Mertens was a non-fiduciary. I think uh, Russell was a fiduciary, so yes, I think they could have for equitable relief. But they were suing for damages there. I don't think they could have recovered damages under 502A3. So that one of the keys to your case is that you contend here you're getting equitable relief. Correct. And that's what distinguishes Russell. That's right, and, and we can only obtain equitable relief under 502A3. We, we and we have no, no issue before us here as the case comes to us about whether what you did recover fits that description. Correct. They, they have not brought that to you. We Looks a lot like damages. Uh, Justice Hansen at the circuit level in the dissent uh, had some thoughts along that line and wanted it sent back to have a better record developed on that. Our position is, as you know from the briefs, that you should follow the number one, what you said is the cardinal rule of statutory construction, and that is when the language used by Congress is plain, you should assume Congress means what they said and said what they mean, and judicial inquiry should stop there. And we think the language of 502A3 is clear. Petitioners say, but when you read it in the context of the entire act, there's a conflict between it and 409. There is not. You have to read language into 409, that language being that it is exclusive. It doesn't say that. Or language that says you can only find, have plan-based relief and not individual relief. It doesn't say that. They say, but the Russell decision puts that language in there. It does not. The Russell court made clear that 502A3 had not been urged upon it in that case. Some, certainly some language in Russell that suggests the plaintiffs wouldn't have fared any better under 502A3. Well, that's correct. And, and uh, the, the concurring opinion points that out, that it's broader than it needs be. But I think that can be explained by the argument that was being presented to get a private cause of action under 409, where they were focusing on, they recognized it said losses to the plan, so they focused on the catch-all at the end that said other equitable or remedial relief, and they said that means that Congress wanted to have private cause of actions there, and I believe it was in that context that the court used that broader language 
uh, as it did. In any event, we do have a footnote five Correct. that says that explicitly that we're not passing on that question. That's right. With regard uh, to the second question for review, uh, I was pleased to hear petitioners say that this isn't a disclosure case. This is a duty of honesty case. While this court may choose to speak to a broader duty, all that's required to affirm in this case is to find that when an employer, uh, administrator of a plan, exercises its discretion to speak to its employee participants about administration plan benefits, it has a duty to be honest. And that's not a burdensome duty. There's been a lot of concerns raised in Petitioner and Arbiki's brief about the burden this is going to place on employers. This is not a clairvoyance case. That simple minimal rule that the circuit could be affirmed on doesn't require clairvoyance to speak about future events. Here, the district court... I, I don't see, I mean, what, what they're contesting is, is, is whether it is part of the administration of the plan. I don't see how it becomes more administration if you lie and less administration if you tell the truth, or uh, less administration if you just remain silent. I mean, we, the point is, is, was this part of the, of the administering? Of the plan? You're exactly right, and we don't base it being fiduciary conduct and that they were acting as a fiduciary because they lied, although I think that could be a legitimate basis. Why? Well, I well, think, well you've just undone what you just conceded. Well, How can the fact that you're lying cause it to be administration when if you were telling the truth it wouldn't be administration? Just, just as that two hats doctrine, they always have both hats in their hand. They put one on to speak as employer as a non-fiduciary, but they're lying in a manner that they, it's reasonably foreseeable that the participants are going to act on it to the detriment. They hear that as a fiduciary. They have a duty to put the other hat on and say, participants, you're not being told the truth. But that's not our case, of course, because the district court... I worry that it's your case. I mean, this is an enormously important issue. Every employer who runs a single em 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 employer plan is, is going to be at risk with respect to everything he says in the operation of his business, because he is a trustee uh, at all times and is subject to lawsuits by people saying, well, when you made this representation, you had a trustee's obligation. I think it, we, we need an absolutely clear line. And, and if the line is going to be something like, well, if you're, if you're lying, it somehow moves closer to administration, I, I don't know uh, how, how uh, an employer would know how to behave. For purpose of affirming, I do, we do not urge uh, the rule that it be based on lying. It's based on whether or not they're talking about plan administration or plan benefits. That should be the rule, and when they do, they're acting as a fiduciary and they have a duty to be honest. In this case, the unchallenged factual findings are that they were talking about benefits, they were talking about plan administration. What, given those findings, it necessarily has to be that they were acting as a fiduciary. What were those findings based on? I mean, I, I thought we had, we had the words that they said. You have the words that they said. And what were those words? They, they said you're your benefits will continue unchanged. That's true. That, that's not what you're suing on. It, well, it certainly is. They did not remain The unchanged. plan benefits were changed? The but, plan benefits no, were... We didn't say, if, I'm, if I said plan benefits, uh, I misspoke because uh, we agree. We're not attacking the plans. We're talking about administration and benefits. And we told not talking about plan terms, but we're talking about benefits continuing in the future 
with this new corporation, which had such a bright future and the excitement they had about how it was going to do. I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to. It, it, I, I thought that there is a piece of paper, questions and answers. Yes. What happens to my plan, benefits, pension, etc.? Answer, when you transfer to MCC, they will leave, stay the same, etc. And then at the bottom of the page, it says, we are very optimistic, our company has a bright future, we are, etc. So it comes in a context, I thought your point was. The question, what happens to my benefits? When you answer that question, you are answering in your capacity as administrator. Exactly, right. Justice. I, I mean, I, and, and it was in the four documents that was presented to them. The misrepresentation is not that the new... The new piece of paper that, uh, the, uh, on which the new plan is written has the same words as the old piece of paper. Your claim is that the misrepresentation was you're going to continue to enjoy them with the same probability or expectation that you would enjoy them if you remained under the old plan. That's the nub of your claim. That's exactly right, and it's in that context. And, and in the context that in this short brief meeting they said you need to sign this today to transfer so you be sure those benefits will not be interrupted. But the, the, the question on that point is simply that the part about the Massey Combines Corp comes in response to the next question and on a separate page. So is he still answering with his hat as the fiduciary? That's correct. Oh, I, that's not correct. That's a question. <laughs> <laughs> You're asking that if when they switch over to talking about the business matters that they're still talking about, and, and I say, yes, that's true, they're still talking as a beneficiary, that you have to set this in the context of the factual findings unchallenged that they wanted to rid themselves of these without exercising their right of termination, and they had a second and dual purpose of they wanted to persuade their lenders that they had an up-and-going viable uh, entity. And in that setting, where they talked about the benefits and then talked about the prospects of the entity that was going to be the source of the funds to fund this self-funded plan, that was all, in our judgment, fiduciary conduct. And again, so it was because you're, I think you're saying it would have been very odd for, or it would have been unreasonable for employees to say, oh, now that he's talking about the rosy future, He's not making any statement that might be relevant to my decision about joining the new plan. Isn't That's that the dub of what you're saying? That's correct. Thank you, Mr. Smith. Mr. Needler, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Uh, first, just to uh, uh, put in context the, the nature of the fiduciary breach claim here, uh, we think it is precisely as Justice Souter stated it. The, the, uh, the statement that plan benefits will remain unchanged might have accurately described the plan on paper, but a plan in the real world consists of more than just the paper the document is written on. It consists of the funds that will be available to pay the benefits. And in this case, it's the same analytically as if the welfare, benefit, uh, ben welfare benefits were paid out of a separate corpus, and it would take $50 million to fund the benefits, but the employer had only put $1,000 into it. If the employer said your benefits will remain unchanged and the plan looked the same on paper, that would not be a fully accurate description to the employees who were being induced to leave a secure plan to go to an un unsecure plan to say that their benefits had remained unchanged. 
So this was quite clearly a, a representation about the current status of the benefit that's plan. That's not the point. The point is whether it is not undertaken, whether it's of interest to people who are in the plan, whether it would affect their, uh, their actions in the plan. The issue is whether it, the representation is made in the administration of the plan. Yes, no, I, I understand that. I was, I, I was simply trying to describe what the, what the nature of the misrepresentation was. But, but by the same token, when, it, when, when an employer wearing two hats is asked to describe what the, what the employee's benefits will be under the current plan, this is not a statement of an intent to amend the plan in the future. This is a statement of what the employee's benefits are or will be under the current plan. This is a statement of current plan of benefits availability. In that situation, we think, it, we think it's quite clear that the uh, employer is speaking in a fiduciary capacity, or at least would be understood by the reasonable employees in a meeting such as this, where, where the employer, uh, through all of the communications, constantly referred to the benefit consequences of the switch, that the employer, employers were being spoken to about their benefits, which is, after all, a classic administrator responsibility under the Act. It is the administrator of the plan that is responsible for disclosing documents uh, to, to plan participants, the, the summary plan description and uh, notice of material modifications. So the employees would have been used to, and in fact, in this case, did receive the communications about plan benefits but not, from the employer. It's certainly not his duty to disclose the financial health of the company, is it? Is not it certainly not as a, as a general matter. Anticipated future prospects for the company? No, our, our, our position is not as a, that, that that's true as a general matter. In the Borst case, for example, where the employer is not speaking to the employees but speaking in another context, there's certainly no duty to disclose. But where the... Where the, employees, where the employer is having a meeting face-to-face -face with the employees, asking them to switch from one, one arm of the company to another and talking about the benefit consequences of that, we believe that that, is, that that is planned participation where the viability of the company is the same as saying there won't be funds available to pay the benefit. When, he's, when he is speaking to the employees about what's going to happen to them under the plan. Which plan is he administering? He's administering the first plan when he makes the misrepresentation, isn't he? We, we frankly think he's administering both he's plans. He's administering both. Right, he, uh, the, what if we assume, just assume for the sake of argument, that he's, a, that he's just administering the first plan? I threw out a suggestion which Mr. Abrams said was, was really uh, relied on too high a level of generality of the concept of administration. What's, what's your uh, theory of the administrative character of, of, with respect to the first plan? Uh, in making statements in, in, intended to induce people to leave that plan. How does that relate to administration on your theory? Well, I, I, I think ordinarily when an, when an administrator has people sign up or exit a plan, maybe incident to leaving employment, but, but it's, 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 uh, it's typical uh, in, uh, fiduciary responsibility for, to, to handle the paperwork coming and going from a plan, and that's what we think would have been happening here that the fiduciary under the existing plan would have, would have been uh, describing or been understood by the em employees to be describing the benefit consequences of leaving one plan run by MF and, and joining another plan essentially run by, run by MF. So we think that, it, that the employer was really wearing administrative, uh, administrative hat under both plans at the, at the time it was speaking. Mr. Needler, yes, how do you interpret, uh, what is it, 502A3? Uh, do you think that the Russell case um, somehow pointed the way to a more limited 
meaning? No, uh, we don't. First of all, the court in footnote five of Russell specifically noted that the employee, that the, the participant there was not suing under 502A3. It was suing if under they 502. had, could they have recovered? Not the damages that were being sought there. That was straight compensatory damages. And we think that's significant in looking at the operation of 502A3. Since Russell was decided, this court held in Mertens that other appropriate equitable relief does not include compensatory damages. So the relief available under 502A3 is considerably more limited than what would be available for compensatory damages claimed in Russell or under Section 409 of the plan on behalf of the plan. So we think that that explains the differences between 502A2 and 502A3. But if, if, if you were starting on that, you'd say, look, 404 says a fiduciary has obligations to participants and beneficiaries. It doesn't speak of obligations to a plan. Really, That's a trustee has obligations to the fiduciaries and participants. Or then when you looked at the remedial part, it would look as if one is somewhat special. You sue under one to get benefits. Right. You sue under two where there's a breach of fiduciary obligation. And you sue under three for some other thing. Well, you sue and, under... And so what they're worried about is they're saying Russell blocks two. Russ and three never covered it. That's what they're saying, but we think that's... Well, why isn't it easier to say two does cover fiduciary? No, I... I 409 covers certain obligations to individuals. 409, no, 404 covers obligations to individuals. I'm saying that two covers fiduciaries, breaches of fiduciary relationship, but some of those breaches of fiduciary relationship to individuals like this case were not covered elsewhere may be picked up too and not blocked. I mean, it's Russell. I'm still trying to get you to talk about Russell and, and the relationship to three. Well, it's possible that the concluding clause in, 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 four, in 409 could have been understood to be available to individuals to sue, but the court concluded blocked that Blocked in Russell by other things in the act. Blocked in Russell by the fact that there's a whole scheme of for, how you get... For benefits. That's exactly right, and we think that's significant. But, but the court does not have to revisit Russell because 502A3 provides for equitable relief for violation of any provision of Title I, any violation of any provision of Title I. That, by its terms, includes Section 404. And what they're worried about there, the amici, is if we say that, we open the thing up to suits in every case where a, a, a beneficiary is deprived of uh, an operation or whatever, and then they bring come in under three, and they sue, you see, you breached your fiduciary obligation to me. That's what they're worried about, that interpretation. Well, but, but because the, the, the remedy under 502A3 is limited by virtue of, of, of Mertens, there would be a self-limiting principle applicable there. Well, you have an intentional misrepresentation, as there was here, where the employer stands to gain. Yeah, but look, but, uh, somebody comes in, my heart operation, give me an injunction. Uh, trustee, hey, uh, this doesn't require it. Uh, uh, a person, uh, you breach your fiduciary obligation in not giving me my heart operation. Injunction, please. No. And, I, and that's the kind of thing there was. No, I, I, I don't think there's any, any inconsistency at all with the benefit provision because the employer, the employer pays benefits under the Act either because they're covered or they're not covered. If the employer has the authority under group to interpret the plan, then, there, then that would be reviewed under an abuse of discretion standard. That abuse of discretion is the ambit of the, of the uh, fiduciary's uh, fiduciary responsibilities. There would be no separate claim under 502A3. Well, I don't understand that. Why, why not? I mean, it seems to me the suit would lie. I mean, if you're saying that they, that they might lose because uh, you, you'd have to give it's deference it's, to the trustee's interpretation. What I meant to say is there would, no, there would not be an inconsistent result. It would be the same result because the fiduciary standards would be the same under, under each. Oh, sure. But, but uh, I, think, I think what Justice Breyer is concerned about, as I am, is simply the, the volume of litigation that's, uh, that, that uh, 
is going to arise with but in that situation, individual if, suits. If, in that situation, if you get exactly the same relief, there wouldn't, it wouldn't increase the litigation at all. If I could say that the petitioner's theory is that somehow 502A12345 are airtight compartments and there's no overlap. That's not true. All, all you have to do is look at A1 and A3, both of which refer to violations of the plan. Uh, A1 refers to specific violations with respect to not paying benefits, but 502A3 also includes uh, uh, other violations of the plan. And we're saying the same thing here with respect to fiduciary obligations. 502A2 specifically covers personal liability and other equitable relief for the fiduciary to the plan, but that doesn't detract from the fact that 502A3 also covers any violation of the Act, which includes the fiduciary responsibility provisions. Under petitioner's theory, the injunctive suit that Justice O'Connor referred to wouldn't even lie. The, the ten people who were transferred to the new plan would not even have an action for injunctive relief to restore them to the old plan. Mr. Neeger, can I ask you a, a, the question that the Chief Justice started, out, started the argument with? In your view, if the, your opponent prevailed in this case, would their state law actions that they described be preempted? Well, we think that the preemption question has to be considered in, in connection with the availability of the remedies under, under Section uh, 502, as the court suggested in Russell. And if, yeah, what's your answer to my question? If, if, the, if the cause of action lies here, there would not be preemption. If the cause of action does not, uh, excuse me, there would be preemption. If the cause of action does not lie under ERISA, then we think that there should be a broader ambit of claims for fraudulent oh, misrepresentation. There would not be preemption, Yes, uh, for misrepresentations about benefit, uh, where that's an inducement for an employment change. Thank you, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Abrams, you have two minutes remaining. I'd like to return to Justice O'Connor's observation earlier uh, when you said that it looked a lot like damages. It's perfectly true that we have not put at issue here, it is not before the court, whether this is equitable relief or not. Uh, the district court basically gave the class a choice of either taking a lump sum in damages for everything or reinstatement uh, and the like. Uh, it looks a lot to us, and both of them look a lot to us, like benefits. It is the award of benefits, and, that, and, and it is instinct in that award of benefits. That's what they'll be getting if we lose the, this case, is that there's at least a potential conflict with subpart one, or at least an overlap with subpart one. We think subpart one is supposed to deal with benefits. We think that there is a clarity to the statute. Sure, there's some overlap, but the court is, as it praised Congress occasionally for crafting this with special care and the like, Subpart 1 is the benefit section, and it is the case that if we lose here, that in the ordinary course, any well-advised uh, uh, plaintiff will sue under subpart 1 and 3, under 1 for saying, I didn't get benefits, under 3 for saying, you breached your fiduciary obligations and not awarding me uh, benefits. And we think that's not a, an appropriate way to interpret what Congress meant, nor do we think it's appropriate to interpret the breadth of Section 409 in such a narrow way as has been suggested today. I read, in conclusion, the first line of Section 409A, any person who is a fiduciary with respect to a plan who breaches any of the responsibilities, obligations, or duties, etc., is the start of it. We think Section 409 was Congress's effort to deal with, quote, liability for breach of fiduciary duty. And unless this court is to revisit Russell, and we understand full well Russell doesn't govern here. You said it didn't govern. But unless you are to revisit Russell, it is the logic, it is the sense of Russell and of 409 and of the statute as, as comprehensively viewed 
uh, that there cannot be recovery Thank here. You, Thank you, Your Honor. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock.